Well, today we uh, want to continue our go back to Noah, right, uh, and uh, working our way through there. And so we want to uh, uh, stop off once again where we where we left off last time because I think it really speaks into our uh, into our world into the world uh, in which we live. And uh, that is that, boy, uh, there's certainly a lot of saber rattling going on in our world. And, uh, and it can really, perhaps for many people, bring a sense of uh, fear and uh, maybe uh, anxiety and things of that nature. And it's interesting because when you come to the end, well, when you come to the Noah story, uh, the end of the flood part, uh, there are some very important words here in, in this narrative, and we need to really, uh, uh, hopefully, uh, understand them and be comforted by them and recognize in the big picture what God uh, was doing, is doing, and is going to do. So, uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. So Noah builds an altar to the Lord, right? That's what it says there. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing that I, as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And the Lord blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground, and all of the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in, the image of, for in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, and I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, 
that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. All right. So the reason that uh, we want to read all of that together is because it all goes together, this, this uh, little section. And uh, it can be a little confusing when you, when you think about it. Uh, uh, here, we read in uh, chapter 6, if you remember, that uh, uh, the Lord, in verse 5 of chapter 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man and animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God sees the corruption of the earth and that man uh, cannot help but be evil and, and uh, be corrupt and so on. And so God says, so I'm going to blot out, going to judge the entire creation, right? But we see that Noah is the remnant, right? Noah is the remnant. God is going to bring judgment. Now at the end of the flood, they come out of the ark Noah offers a sacrifice to God, and God still says, I, I know that every you know, a man is uh, evil continuously, and I won't destroy the world again. So it's interesting. First, God says that, that man is uh, you know, evil continuously, and I'm going to destroy everything. And then God says, I see that man is evil, and I won't destroy everything. So it, it begs us to ask the question, uh, what's going on? Why did God change His mind? Uh, I, did He try to uh, did He try to rehabilitate the world and saw that this was not that He made a mistake that that plan was not a good plan, and so He decided, nah, I don't think I'll destroy the world again. I'll try something else. Right? Uh, some uh, might think that with a, a casual reading uh, of the text. Why does God say, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of his heart is evil? God said, I will, I will blot everything out because the intent of man's heart is evil earlier. But now we see there's a change. Now, perhaps it is uh, that God smelled the soothing aroma, because that's what we read here, right? The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. In other words, God received the offering of Noah, God received the offering of Noah, right? And so it seems that man has not changed, but God is no longer going to bring that judgment. And so it's very interesting, certainly the way that the text is laid out, evidently the, uh, uh, Noah's offering makes a difference. Noah's offering makes a difference, that God smells the aroma and he pours out grace and mercy, uh, not only upon Noah, but upon all of mankind. 
And so, in an interesting way, Noah is kind of, again, uh, kind of like a messianic figure. He's not the Messiah in any, uh, you know, in, in any uh, sense of the word, but he's like a messianic figure. He intercedes uh, uh, on behalf of mankind. Uh, and we see that God, uh, God relents. Now, there's something else to understand here. There's a few things uh, to understand. First of all, the intent of God in bringing the flood was judgment. It was not rehabilitation. In other words, I went, there's nowhere in the sixth chapter that we read that, okay, God is going to save Noah, and then it'll be like the, then it'll be like the Garden of Eden, and then everything will be great. Noah? No. And it's interesting because when you go back and you look at Noah, uh, if you remember, it says about Noah, he was righteous in his time. Remember, righteous in his time. And remember we said that the, uh, the, the rabbis, uh, ancient rabbis commented on that and saying, the times were so bad that uh, you know, Noah was righteous for the days in which he lived, Noah was righteous. Uh, and, and so it is rather interesting because after the flood, uh, we'll see, not today, but we'll see next time, that once the narrative continues about Noah's life, we see that sin abounds, uh, and uh, uh, we don't seem to see a, a, rehabilitated, a rehabilitated world. But we do see this great judgment. And what God is saying now, when he says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of his heart is evil, uh, is that God is showing now great mercy. And rather than judging the entire earth again, blotting out all of mankind, maybe except for one individual, what we see through the rest of the Bible, through the rest of the history of man and God, is that God is going to deliver. He's going to deliver mankind. Now that does not mean that there won't be judgment, because as we'll see, there clearly is a promise of judgment uh, at the consummate at the end. Clearly, a promise of judgment, uh, but not the end of the world, not like the flood, not the destruction of all of uh, of humanity. God says He's not going to do that again. Uh, and uh, 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 He goes on to say here uh, that there'll be. The, the normality of seasons, you know, the, the rhythm of the world is going to continue. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night uh, uh, shall not cease. Now, if we jump over to the last part of what we read, we'll come back to the middle part. But when he says, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you in verse 9 and your descendants and with every living thing, that God now is saying, I promise, I'm making an unconditional promise, not only to human beings, but to animals and everything that he's created, that he is not going to bring that kind of judgment in the world. So he spends a lot of time explaining this here that uh, he's not going to bring uh, this uh, not going to bring this uh, this judgment he says in verse 11 and i establish my covenant with you and all flesh 
shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy all the earth. And like uh, many a promise that God makes, he gives a sign, right? We know that the sign of God's uh, covenant with Israel, he gives two signs to Israel, right? One is we're experiencing it right now, Shabbat. Shabbat is a sign of God's unconditional covenant relationship with Israel, which has everything to do with deliverance. You know, God's covenant relationship with Israel is, is that in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Out of you shall come a king. Uh, out of you uh, will, uh, will come forth uh, deliverance and salvation uh, and, and so on. And the promise of that first is Shabbat. Okay, When we have Shabbat, we know that there's going to be a day when the world is going to be at peace and rest. It's a reminder to us. We get to experience a little taste of it now, but every Shabbat, regardless of where we are, because, you know, it's time. It's not, it doesn't depend on where you are. Do you realize that it is Shabbat if you uh, uh, don't ever come to a service? <laughs> it is Shabbat if you don't even recognize it. It's like, you know, it's an objective reality. This period, everybody on earth that's alive is experiencing time right now. Whether they're sleeping, whether they're not sleeping, whether they're engaged in all kinds of uh, activity that we would never want to uh, hear about or know about, we're all experiencing this period of time. And God, by his grace and his mercy, says to Israel, I'm giving you this time so that you'll acknowledge it. And so therefore, all who, who know the Lord acknowledge it. You know, it, it's not so much uh, uh, about exactly who does what, you know, uh, and uh, it, it's about remembering it and observing it uh, in our heart, in our mind, and therefore, you know, in our being. But it's a reminder to us. It's a reminder to us of the unconditional covenant relationship. The other one is circumcision, the bris right? Uh, the bris, that is again a sign of God's covenant, that, uh, that uh, Israel will be fruitful and multiply, uh, and by extension that there will indeed come the deliverer. There will indeed come the seed through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And of course, uh, we know that that is Yeshua, but we know that uh, all that he came to do is not all done yet, right? And that there will be this day of uh, consummation. Well, here, uh, God gives a, uh, a sign of the promise that he is not going to judge uh, the earth like this. In a, he's not going to blot out uh, uh, all, of, all of mankind, Okay. And he calls it a bow. We call it a rainbow. Okay? Uh, he says, I set my bow in the cloud. Now, you know what's interesting about that is, is that it's the same word as bow like you would read in a, uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a weapon. Like a bow. You know, and an arrow. I, 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 an, an, an act of... Uh, 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 a, a military uh, a weapon, offensive weapon, okay? But God says he's going to put his bow, not as a weapon, 
but as a sign of life, but as a sign of mercy, and as a sign of grace. Because that's what the, that's what the bow means, that God says he's never going to destroy the earth again. It is, an act, it is a sign of God's grace. It is a sign of God's mercy. It is a sign, therefore, of, of God's promise and of, uh, and of hope. And so he says uh, in verse 15, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the uh, water, water become a flood to destroy the earth. Okay? And then he repeats it. Uh, he repeats it again. Uh, and uh, clearly, uh, you know, he is making much of this, right? Uh, he says in verse 16, When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh uh, that is on the earth. So, one takeaway of this is that God is not going to destroy the world. In other words, the world is not going to be annihilated and extinguished. Right Now, the obvious question here, and people write about it, some would say that, uh, well, it says God won't destroy the world, but uh, what about people? Maybe people will destroy uh, uh, the, the world. So it reminds me of a line in a movie, uh, a movie about uh, Peter Pan. Uh, maybe you saw it, uh, Hook, right? So there about Captain Hook. There is a line at the beginning where the chief character uh, he, uh, doesn't know he's Peter Pan. And he's flying with his family to London, right? But he's afraid of flying, deathly afraid of flying, right? Uh, and so he's leaving his workplace, and everybody is encouraging him, saying, oh, people fly all the time, oh, it's safer than riding in a car, uh, you know, and, and all of that. Uh, and then uh, just as he's getting in the elevator, someone says, uh, you know, it's not your time, and so he gets in the elevator and he says, well, it may not be my time. What if it's the pilot's time? <laughs> you know? Uh, and then the elevator door closes. Uh, and, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, to me, that, it's that kind of, it's that kind of, uh, of a question. Uh, it's not like uh, a man is, uh, has total free reign and can do whatever he wants. And God says, hey, look, I'm not going to destroy the world, you know? You may, uh, but you know that's not much of uh, that's not much of a promise. Uh, I, I, I don't think you know, uh, and uh, and so I think that uh, it, it's important for us to to recognize that uh, yes, there is a judgment at the end, a severe judgment at the end. But God is not going to blot out mankind. It's not going to be the end. It's not going to be the end. Right now. Let's turn to a passage, and the only reason I really want to turn to it is because this could be confusing, and I want to just deal with it so that you may read this and say, but Howard, you said that God is not going to destroy the world. And it's in 2 Peter, all the way at the other end of the Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 
Because having said, just said, God is not going to destroy the world, we know it's quite clear to us from the words of Yeshua, we read it in the letters, that there is a day coming of judgment in this world. We read it in the prophets. We read uh, about uh, judgment. And Peter uses uh, you know, apocalyptic language to describe this judgment. So let's read uh, a few verses here, beginning in verse 1. And then we're going to go back, but I, wanted, <laughs> I just want to point this out so that we're not, we don't get confused. So beginning in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. <laughs> Again, the prophets uh, you know, and Yeshua spoke of these things. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Have you ever heard that? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long before, long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct uh, and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements uh, will uh, melt with intense uh, heat. Okay. So now when you read that, you get the impression that there is going to be an absolute end to the world. It's going to be a, an annihilation by water and, and then by fire, right? But I would suggest to us, based on the volumes of passages in the Bible that talk about uh, resurrection and a future world in which we live, that he's using language to get the attention of the people so that they will recognize that there is going to indeed be a day of great judgment. And we read about it. We read about it in the prophets. We read about it uh, in uh, almost all of them. Uh, what comes to mind, of course, is Zechariah, where we read about the nations are going to come against Jerusalem, uh, and it's going to look like all is lost. Uh, and then God is going to empower uh, Jerusalem uh, and uh, there will be victory, and the Lord is going to return, uh, and uh, all the nations are going to come to Jerusalem and worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter is well aware 
uh, of those passages. And much like in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, for which you will be able to uh, take a course online very soon, uh, you will see that he's using language to persuade them uh, to, uh, to repent and to live godly now, right? Uh, and as an encouragement that, you know, people may be mocking and people may uh, be saying, you know, well, uh, you know, a lot of time has gone by. Is he ever going to return? Is it ever, you know, you keep talking about it. Is it ever going to happen? And Peter is saying, you better believe it's going to happen. But God, in his faithfulness and in his mercy, even as we read uh, in uh, the book of Revelation, it is not the end, uh, the end of the end as if uh, God is going to come and extinguish the world and that's it. For he says in verse 7, the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The day of destruction and of ungodly men. And so God, yes, is going to uh, uh, destroy uh, uh, sin. Uh, there's going to be a judgment, yes, in this world. Uh, but I would suggest that when he talks about uh, the fire and the elements and everything burning up, it is a euphemism for judgment. It's a euphemism for judgment, a great judgment. Okay? Uh, but as uh, uh, Peter himself knows and teaches, that certainly it is not uh, the end of the end. So I just wanted to bring that up uh, because one could come to the conclusion, well, there is going to be the end of the end, right? And that God says here, not by, not, he's not going to have a flood, see? He doesn't say anything about fire, but he's not going to have a flood. But I believe very much that the point of this, going back here to the ninth, eighth and ninth chapter, is that God is not going to destroy, he's going to deliver. He's going to deliver. And it is as it is true here, it is true at the end time judgment as well. He's going to judge, but the end result of it is a great deliverance. See, And so therefore, I, I, may I suggest that when you read uh, uh, the Bible, or when you add up all of the narratives and so on, we read about how uh, God does not allow nations to just go and do whatever they whatever they feel like, but he uses nations. Now, the thing is, is that, you know, in our uh, world that we live in, uh, we don't know exactly, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know exactly how God is at work, exactly. We don't know that. But we know that he is uh, indeed, uh, he is indeed uh, the, uh, the king. Uh, and uh, uh, we know that uh, uh, just he, as God brought great judgment uh, and then by great mercy says that, uh, you know, he's never going to destroy um, uh, uh, again every living thing. And notice again carefully the words of verse 21 of chapter 8, right? 
I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Period. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. All right? Now, what we know, again, you have to keep coming or keep reading Genesis, is to know that what God is going to do now is he's actually, by saying that he's never going to destroy every living thing, it means that he's limiting, one might say, he's limiting what he's going to do. It can get so horrible, so dark, so corrupt, but God is not going to destroy every living thing. What does he do? You know what he does, right? See, remember that the entire book of Genesis is really a long genealogy, okay? And interspersed in the genealogies are these narrative stories, okay? So after the flood, basically, what we're going to read, just in general, is that man is still the same man. We're going to see that illustrated in Noah and his sons. And then we're going to see the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And we're going to see in Ham's genealogy, in Ham's genealogy is going to be this pause. And we're going to read about another attempt, another sinful, another top 10 sinful moments of mankind, right? In the Tower of Babel. And then Shem's genealogy is going to continue. And then we come to the end of chapter 11. And out of one of the sons of Noah comes Abraham. And God is going to say, out of you, all the, uh, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so God is not going to blot out mankind. He's going to work within mankind to bring deliverance and salvation. And he's going to call out Israel. And we're going to see how the nature of God works as the deliverer, how he is indeed the deliverer of Israel, and how that plays into the promises to all of mankind. Uh, and we have the coming of a Messiah and so on. Now, let's turn to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. In most Bibles, Isaiah 54 comes after Isaiah 53. Actually, I better say in all of your Bibles, because there is this nasty rumor that I have heard that people think that in Jewish Bibles, Isaiah 53 isn't there. Have any of you ever heard that? Yeah, it's there. Believe me, okay? In, in fact, if you find a Bible that Isaiah 53 is not there, you should write to the publisher so you get a free Bible or something because uh, it's in every Bible, okay? So you know Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant. The suffering servant takes the judgment of a mankind on himself, doesn't he? Well, Isaiah 54 is very interesting. It says, after Isaiah 53, after the suffering servant takes that great judgment, and then he'll see his offspring, and so on and so forth, we read, Shout for joy, O barren one! You who have borne no child, break forth into joy, shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed, not suffered. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. 
for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the nations may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Okay? How important it is for us to recognize that God, the God of Noah, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Israel, the God of Isaiah, the one who sent forth the Messiah to take the judgment for us, right? And God promises that in the Messiah, he will not bring a judgment on all of mankind. For if God destroys all of mankind, then there is no deliverance, there is no promise, and it's all in vain. But we have this great promise from God as he makes uh, to Israel, you know, and of course to all of us, that, uh, that while we may deserve the, the, the blotting out, while we may deserve the death, look at the world and our community, and uh, even ourselves. But God is the God of deliverance. And he sent the Messiah to take our sins on himself. When he says, I'm not going to destroy all of mankind because man is uh, evil from his, you know, in his intent from his youth, it doesn't mean he's simply going to put up with it, but he's going to do something about it. And what he does about it is... Uh, send the Messiah. So it's kind of interesting because you have in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54 kind of a, a reminder of the judgment of the flood and then God saying, I'm never, going to, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. In Isaiah 53, we have the judgment, but he takes it. We don't, we're not all blotted out. Yeshua takes the judgment, but is raised from the dead. But then we see as a result, it's like an altar call in Isaiah 54. You know, come to me, come to me, Israel and the nations, come to me, you know, and like the days of Noah, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to uh, destroy you. And so uh, I'm not going to uh, uh, blot you out. And so we can rest assured that God's promise is sure and true and that in the death and resurrection of Yeshua, there is the assurance of the salvation of the world. The salvation of the world. Because of, the, of uh, Yeshua judging our sins and being raised from the dead, 
God is going to restore the earth. God is going to restore the world and humanity who indeed embraces him. That's why we read about a new heaven and we read about a new earth and we read about a new Jerusalem. And it's interesting now because when we go back to Genesis in chapter 9, God tells, here he says, he's not going to, he's not going to bring, uh, uh, destroy every living thing as I have done. And then in chapter 9 it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, this is part of God. This is what God wants mankind to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? And so God says, I know that the, I know the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, he says in 8.21. And so here he said, but he says, it's almost like he's saying, nevertheless, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I know God knows what's coming. He knows the sinfulness of man. But in his mercy, he's going to provide deliverance even through sinful man. He's going to provide deliverance for the world and creatures. But we know that the result of the flood did not bring, did not bring that. It was a judgment. It did not bring deliverance. It brought judgment. And so we see the imperfect world now that mankind inhabits until the day comes when, the, when again, judgment comes and uh, the new heavens and new earth uh, become manifest. In verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given." What we see now is, is we know the nature of man has not changed. Man is still alienated from man. We're going to see that with Noah and demonstrated with Noah, sadly, Noah and his, son, and his sons. But also, the animal world and mankind are alienated from each other. Okay? This was not the case at the beginning. There it says, over, you know, rule them, rule them. It doesn't say anything in the beginning of Genesis that there was animosity between the animals and, and human beings. But we see it here. Fear. The fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, and so on, as, as we read. Then it says, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave uh, the green plant. And so now, as a result of the sinfulness of mankind, it is an imperfect world. And mankind uh, uh, eats meat. Now, before we all say, then, does that mean as believers we should all become uh, vegetarians or raw eaters or, you know, that kind of thing? No, because actually uh, in the offerings, you read that the eating of meat was actually a holy thing that the priests did. So that's an interesting, uh, that's very interesting. That the economy changes. One could say the economy of God changes. The way God administrates the world changes. And now, given the condition of mankind, uh, uh, food is given. Now, notice it says here, everything is food for you. Isn't that interesting? But when God uh, calls out Israel, he limits what they can eat. Here he says everything is food for you, but for uh, Israel, not everything is 
is for you to eat. And so, you know, there's another, there's another really fabulous lesson in all of this. As we can see, there's so much to learn here. Is that, you know, just as God limits himself uh, in, uh, in saying, I'm not going to destroy humanity. And by delivering mankind, he limits himself. Working with imperfect people, as we will see with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the whole lot of them. Right? So, God gives us limits when we live in his economy when we live under his administration. He gives us limits. We have moral limits. We have ethical limits. He gives us the boundaries, boundaries to live by. And that's part of being created in the image and likeness of God. Then he says, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require uh, the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, uh, by man his blood shall be shed in the image of God uh, he made man. Okay, a couple of things about this. And that is that here we read that when you eat flesh, you can't eat living flesh. No cannibalism here. No eating live animals. No biting heads off of chickens, if you know what I mean. If you remember that kind of thing. Okay. And then also it says, and, and also if, if an animal is dead, but it's recently dead and the blood is like still there and it, you know, and it's, you don't eat it then either. You, you, you don't eat, you don't eat this animal, you don't eat living things. Okay. And just as an animal most, when it most recently dies, what's living in it may still be in it. You know what I mean? Okay. And by the way, yes, that is where, uh, in the dietary laws of Israel, it's not only what animal, it's also how an animal is killed. You can have a kosher animal, but if it's not killed in the right way and the blood comes out and all that, it's not kosher. Uh, so that's kind of interesting, little, little uh, uh, interesting information about uh, dietary laws. And then, of course, we come to this. Man is alienated from man. And that's why we read this, uh, that whoever sheds man's blood by his blood uh, shall, be shall be shed. So first, the point we need to get is that this is still a very imperfect world after the flood. Man is still alienated from God. Man is still alienated from the uh, animal world because of the sin that we read about earlier, you know, of Adam and Eve and so on. Uh, we still live with all the repercussions of this, uh, of this sinful world. But God in his grace and his mercy will never destroy it again. Because of his love for mankind, he will indeed bring deliverance. But then, of course, it says that he requires whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. One of the things that this doesn't tell us is how exactly that's supposed to transpire, okay? We, uh, we create rules for our own selves, you know, in, uh, in how this uh, transpires and, and who is the one who uh, takes man's life and, and all of that. Uh, you know, there's a lot oftentimes that we read in, into this, but the point of it is, is that man is created in the image of God and that is why God is not going to destroy all of humanity. We're created in his image. And just as God is not going to blot out all of mankind, 
So man has the responsibility not to take the life of man. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but uh, the, uh, the ancient uh, Jewish sages uh, came up with uh, a series of rules of uh, ethic, uh, basic ethical and moral norms uh, for the world uh, to live by. They're called the Noahide Laws, right? Maybe you've heard of that. Uh, and there's no actually one set uh, of what they are. Those ancient sages, they didn't agree about a lot of things, and they didn't even agree about exactly uh, what those laws are. are. But well, let me just say this that the basic moral and ethical norms by which we live by, you might say what we read in, in uh, Romans chapter 2 as you know, the dictates of uh, the conscience, right? Uh, the ancient rabbis would say come from what God says here uh, uh, to Noah, that these are laws for all of mankind. And they are. It is a law for all of mankind. The rabbis would also include, include idolatry, blasphemy, incest, adultery, robbery, uh, the injunctions to establish courts of law, prohibition against eating flesh from a living animal. Uh, and those, uh, here I'll, I'll read, even right, right from the horse's mouth, right from a Jewish uh, authoritative source. There is no rabbinic, no rabbinic unanimity as to either the number of Noahide commandments or their contents nor is there agreement as to which were given to Adam and which were given to Noah. But the list that enjoys the widest consensus is what I just said. Idolatry, blasphemy, bloodshed, incest, adultery, robbery, the injunction to establish courts of law, and the prohibition against eating, blush, uh, eating uh, flesh cut from a living animal. We can see just about all, just about all of those in this Noah story, I, I would say. I, I, uh, um, so... Uh, we might say, no, why is it that we have, we have verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9 sandwiched in between where God says he's never going to destroy the world again, and then the covenant of the rainbow, right? The covenant of the bow. It's like sandwiched in there is uh, this thing about uh, be fruitful and multiply, uh, uh, and about not eating the blood of animals, and, and so on. May I suggest that it's all about the grace of God and that in this text and even the way that it is presented to us is for us to see that man is still just as corrupt as he was in chapter 6. Uh, he is still corrupt here in chapter 9. But God now begins to give man rules to live by, rules of grace and mercy to live by. Okay, so that we don't destroy ourselves, but, but rules to live by that preserve life, that preserve the, the life of, of mankind within the context of all of that sin. And then God says, I'm not going to destroy uh, the world. I'm going to give you this rain. I'm going to give you the bow. So, you, so I will remember and you will remember this covenant. Uh, uh, that this is, in other words, in the midst of your sin, I'm giving you mercy and grace. And what is fascinating is that when we read about when the day comes, when uh, the Lord returns and he sits on his throne in Jerusalem, that the nations come, enemies come and are reconciled. And not only that, 
But, but what we get from, I think, this text, the importance of the wolf and the lamb, the importance of the wolf and the lamb laying down, that there will be peace in the animal world, that all of God's creation is going to be harmonious uh, and glorifying God uh, as it was at the very, at the very beginning. And so just as, in closing, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he talks all about judgment. He talks all about the judgment of Israel. And remember that the whole history of the Jewish people is like a small version of God's judgment of the world, of God's love toward Israel is a smaller version of God's love toward all of mankind, right? And so God, uh, so Jeremiah tells Israel, you're going into captivity. There's going to be this judgment, right? Kind of like the way we're talking about how there's going to be a judgment at the end. Israel was going to leave the land. They were going to go into Babylon. And what does Jeremiah tell them? Go, go into Babylon and make the best of it. It's basically what he says, okay? He doesn't say you're going to escape it. He says, go and make the best of it. But you see, it's not the end. The judgment is not the end. And what does he say to Israel? May I suggest that while this is to Israel and speaks directly to Israel even today, we can make a wider application of it for us. While we may be fearful of God's judgment, while we may see all kinds of sabers rattling, while we may wonder, wow, like what's going to happen, right? We may, we may see a catastrophe. Doesn't mean, you know, uh, we're not immune from catastrophe, right? But what is our response to that fear? Not to stick our heads in the sand, and not to say, don't worry, nothing's going to happen, but to say, there is a God. There is a God who is the sovereign one. And he doesn't want that anyone should perish, but he wants that we should all embrace him. Because judgment is come. Because there is a God who rules over heaven and earth, there is indeed a, a judgment. But do not fear. Do not fear. Embrace the God of Israel because... We read in chapter, as we read in chapter 29, in verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. To give you a future and a hope. We have indeed a future and a hope. As Peter tells us, in one, the, the same Peter who talks about the fire uh, you know, um, uh, melting down the elements, uh, is the very same one uh, who says here in, uh, one, in the first letter uh, that he wrote, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, See, he uses fire, by the way. He uses fire here. He doesn't mean you actually are, like, burning up, okay? Important that the same writer uses fire as a metaphor for trials and tribulation, okay? Even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Messiah Yeshua. For though you have not seen him, you love him. And though 
You do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And uh, of course, uh, the passage goes on, but we'll stop, we'll stop there. So we have hope and uh, for the future. Our hope is not in uh, promises of this world. Our hope is in, the, um, is in the Messiah who has come and has given us the first fruits of that hope, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God, who dwells within us. And that's why we can rise above our circumstances. And that is the message that we have to share. And so in days when people are worried and are scared, we have a great message. Our, our job is not to go and build uh, holes in the ground and go and live, it, go live in them and, uh, and, uh, and figure out uh, uh, how, how to survive. What we're called to do is to go out to the highways and byways and tell people that there is an answer and that there is a hope. That is what our calling is, right? Very important for us to indeed remember that. To remember that bow in the sky. To remember that God, uh, God's desire is to save mankind and not destroy uh, mankind. And that is indeed why God sent the Messiah. And that is why he said, uh, after Yeshua came, we read in Isaiah 54, right? Of the promise of the coming of the Messiah. That while the mountains may quake and tremble, it's like the days of Noah. No more will I blot out man from the face of the earth. May we be thankful that we can attach ourselves to Messiah today and know him and live victoriously in the face of whatever gets thrown our way. Let's be encouraged and pray. Lord God, we thank you for the revelation of Messiah Yeshua, that he came into this world, into this sinful world, and you did not blot out mankind. He died the substitution for all of mankind and all of the world. But thank you that in his resurrection, we know that he conquered sin and death and that we have new life. And in the resurrection of the Messiah is the hope of, of mankind. Lord, God, we thank you, God. For as uh, uh, Paul says himself, we read, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Thank you, Lord, that that's what we're waiting for. Thank you, Lord, that that is indeed our future, the redemption of our body, the redemption of this world. Lord, may we have our eyes indeed fixed on him, the author and finisher of our faith, and not fixed on anybody else. We pray and thank you in Yeshua's name.